Welcome to the teaching ministry of Magnolia's First. To learn more, visit m1bc.org. What if God took your greatest spiritual failure? That thing from the past that you regret more than any other. You know which one I'm talking about, don't you? What if God took your greatest failure and recorded it in detail in written form and made it available for the whole world to read? Not just in our generation, but in every generation to follow. And you say, well, God wouldn't do that. Oh, but he has. If you look into scripture, you see the the failure of Abraham when he lied about his wife, Sarah. You see Noah's drunkenness. You see Moses' murder of the Egyptian. You see Elijah's fleeing for his life, afraid of Jezebel after a great victory on Mount Carmel. You see Jonah running from the call of God away from Nineveh and getting swallowed up by a fish because of it. You see David and his adultery with Bathsheba and subsequent murder of her husband to try to cover it up. And there are others in Scripture. God has indeed recorded people's greatest failures. They all failed God at different times in their lives. But the most spectacular and personal failure was by a man who was supposed to be the rock, the Apostle Peter. But when the pressure was on, the rock crumbled. Our series is Mission Redemption. We have been following through the Gospel of John's uh, final chapters, and we've been for a couple of weeks in John 18, and we will revisit a portion of that chapter as well as weave in some of the narrative from the other Gospel accounts. And today we're going to do a panoramic review of the life of the Apostle Peter and the time that he spent with Jesus. And we're going to look at his failure. And in the the story of his failure, there is a powerful, practical lesson for every one of us who have failed. It's our big idea for today. Your failures don't have to define you. Your failures don't have to define you. So uh, Peter's life is going to be divided today into seven scenes. And I want you to imagine in the, the theater of your mind each of these scenes as we go through the scriptural narrative. And we're going to talk about what we can learn for our lives from Peter's experience. So let's begin with how it all began for Peter. Scene one, Andrew brings Peter to meet Jesus. We find it in John chapter 1, beginning with verse 35. Imagine this scene. The following day, John was again standing with two of his disciples. As Jesus walked by, John looked at him and declared, Look, there is the Lamb of God. When John's two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. Jesus looked around and saw them following. What do you want? He asked them. They replied, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and see, he said. 
It was about four o'clock in the afternoon when they went with him to the place where he was staying, and they remained with him the rest of the day. Now, here comes see comes Simon Peter. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of these men who heard what John said and then followed Jesus. Andrew went to find his brother Simon and told him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Then Andrew brought Simon to meet Jesus. Looking intently at Simon, Jesus said, your name is Simon, son of John, but you will be called Cephas, which means Peter. Uh, Verse 42 says, Jesus was looking intently at Simon Peter. That's so much more than just a, a human gaze upon someone. It's more than just being focused as you or I would be with one another because Jesus would not just look into his eyes. He would look right into his heart, right into his soul. And he could see Peter for who he really was with all of his faults, with all of his failures, past, present, and future. He could see that Peter had something that he could use for the kingdom of God. That he could be a catalytic leader in the beginning of a spiritual revolution that would change the world forever. And so this scene began Peter's journey with Jesus. As he walked alongside him, as he heard the voice of God incarnate with his own human ears, as he focused on the words that Jesus said, as he learned of the kingdom of God, as Peter experienced some things no one else would ever experience. Scene two. Peter has a truly supernatural experience. In scene two, Peter walks on water. Matthew chapter 14, beginning with verse 22. Immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and cross to the other side of the lake while he sent the people home. After sending them home, he went into the hills by himself to pray. Night fell while he was there alone. Meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble far away from land, for a strong wind had risen, and they were fighting heavy waves. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them, walking on the water. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified. In their fear, they cried out, It's a ghost! But Jesus spoke to them at once. Don't be afraid, he said. Take courage, I am here. Then Peter called to him, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. Yes, come, Jesus said. So Peter went over the side of the boat and walked on the water toward Jesus. But when he saw the strong wind and waves, he was terrified and began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. You have so little faith, Jesus said. Why did you doubt me? 
Now, it seems that Jesus is being pretty hard on Peter here. Actually, he's just challenging Peter to step up his faith. But I think we ought to give Peter a little bit of credit, don't you? He's the only one that got out of the boat. He's the only one who stepped on the water. And when Jesus summoned him, he actually walked on the water. But where Peter faltered, verse 30, when he saw the strong wind and the waves, he took his eyes off Jesus and he looked at the problems and the impossibility around him. And if you know this story, and most of you do, you've heard this before. We too get into trouble when we take our eyes off Jesus. And when we look at the problems and the impossibilities around us. But still, Peter did something supernatural in the power of God. Well, our next scene is a real defining moment in Peter's life. It's a turning point for him. Because in scene three, Peter answers life's most important question. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, beginning with verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, Some say John the Baptist Some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John. Because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you, you did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. You see, Peter could not be a cornerstone of the church of Jesus Christ if he didn't really understand who Jesus is. And confusion was rampant at that time among all the people as to who Jesus really was. And can I tell you, confusion is still rampant today about who Jesus is. Uh, There are some who would say, well, he's the leader of a prominent world religion, but I I don't know if this, you know, he was God thing is really true, or or they will just ignore or, or discredit Christ as being unimportant or irrelevant to lives. Can I tell you, you cannot take a middle ground. C.S. Lewis said it so well when he said he was either Lord liar or lunatic. There's no middle ground. Let me give you that full quote. C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and other great uh, Christian works, was a, a brilliant Christian thinker of a generation ago. And here's one of his most famous quotes. Quote, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we cannot say about him. 
A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who claims he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he was a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. The question was, who is Jesus? And Peter got it right when he said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And because of that rock-like faith, Peter was the preacher on the day of Pentecost when thousands of people came to faith in Jesus. Well, that was a high point. Scene four is a lower point. In scene four, Peter makes a boast, a boast that he won't fulfill. The setting is the upper room. Jesus has enjoyed the meal with the disciples. Judas has already slipped away into the night in order to betray Jesus. Jesus has told his disciples that he would be leaving. So pick up the narrative with me, John chapter 13, verse 36. Simon Peter asked, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, you can't go with me now, but you will follow me later. But why can't I come now, Lord, he asked. I'm ready to die for you. Jesus answered, die for me? I tell you the truth, Peter, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. Peter was caught here between his arrogance and his idealism. It's easy to make a boast when you're not under pressure. It's easy to be overconfident when the, the heat hasn't been turned up yet. It's easy to be arrogant when it's not yet real. But what Peter would face was not hypothetical. And so when he makes such a boast, Jesus gives him a shot of prophetic realism about what he would do when the pressure was real. Our next scene takes place in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we're in John chapter 18, and we see in this scene, Peter's anger leads to violence. John chapter 18, beginning with verse 4. Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him, so he stepped forward to meet them, meaning the, the Roman soldiers and the mob that had come to see Jesus arrested. Who are you looking for, he asked. Jesus the Nazarene, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. 
As Jesus said, I am he, they all drew back and fell on the ground. Once more he asked them, who are you looking for? And again they replied, Jesus the Nazarene. I told you that I am he, Jesus said. And since I am the one you want, let these others go. He did this to fulfill his own statement. I did not lose a single one of those you've given me. But then look, verse 10. Then Simon Peter drew a sword and slashed off the right ear of Malchus, the high priest's slave. But Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. Shall I not drink from the cup of suffering the Father has given me? Uh, We have to enter into the emotion of the moment. At this point, Peter is angry and confused and feeling threatened. and, And he did what was his natural human response especially with his brash nature to the, to the threat, he went on the attack. He had not yet fully grasped that Jesus' mission from the heavenly Father was not going to be to overthrow Rome and set up an earthly kingdom. That his mission was one in which he must die in order to bring redemption to sinners like you and me, that he would become the sacrificial lamb for our sin. Jesus is then arrested. And I think Peter is immediately caught in a vortex of emotion, of despair and fear and paranoia. And he's beginning to wonder if Jesus is going to be arrested and tried and perhaps executed, then what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to my other friends, the other disciples? And in scene six, we find the climax of our drama on the life of the apostle Peter when everything begins to close in around Peter, and he commits the greatest failure of his life when Peter denies Jesus three times. John 18, verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, as did another of the disciples. That other disciple was acquainted with the high priest, so he was allowed to enter the high priest's courtyard with Jesus. Peter had to stay outside the gate. Then the disciple who knew the high priest spoke to the woman watching the gate, and she let Peter in. The woman asked Peter, you're, You're not one of that man's disciples, are you? No, I'm not, he said. Because it was cold, the household servants and the guards had made a charcoal fire. They stood around it, warming themselves, And Peter stood with them, warming himself. A charcoal fire. That'll be significant later on. Remember that. Uh, We we have a gas grill on our back porch. I bet many of you do too. But I can remember when we had those kind of charcoal barbecue pits. And do you remember the distinct smell that a charcoal fire has? Uh, smell can be one of the most powerful memory triggers we can have. And smell is a, a powerful reminder 
That'll come into play later in Peter's story. John 18, verse 25. Meanwhile, as Simon Peter was standing by the fire, warming himself, they asked him again, you're not one of the disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, no, I am not. But one of the household slaves of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, didn't I see you out there in the olive grove with Jesus? Again, Peter denied it. And immediately, a rooster crowed. Peter lied, and he denied any connection with his master with whom he had walked, and he had listened to his teaching. He had witnessed his miracles. He'd even seen him raise Lazarus from the dead. But he didn't stand up for him. He didn't support him. He denied him. And right on cue, the rooster crowed. Suddenly, Peter didn't feel like the rock. The rock had crumbled. In that moment, Peter felt like a traitor. I'm thankful this is not the end of Peter's story. There's one more scene, an epilogue, if you will, to the story of Peter, where Peter is repentant and restored. John chapter 21. It takes place after the resurrection of Jesus as he is spending a few more days on earth before he ascends to his father. John 21 verse 4. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. He called out, fellas, have you caught any fish? No, they replied. Then he said, throw out your net on the right-hand side of the boat and you'll get some. So they did, and they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish. (laughs) Then the disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, for he had stripped for work, jumped into the water, and headed to shore. The others stayed in the boat and pulled the loaded net to the shore, for they were only about a hundred yards from shore. Once again, Peter's the only one who got out of the boat. When he knew it was Jesus, he wasn't going to wait in a fishing boat until it finally would, would ease over to him. He was going to Jesus as fast as he could get there. Verse 9, when they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them. Fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. A charcoal fire. The same kind of fire that there had been that day in the courtyard when Peter denied Jesus. Verse 10. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus said. So Simon Peter went aboard and dragged the net to the shore. There were 153 large fish, and yet the net hadn't torn. Now come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Then Jesus served them the bread and the fish. This was the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples since he had been raised from the dead. And then the scene changes. 
All the other disciples go back to their boat. They go back to their nets, leaving Peter and Jesus alone. Peter is looking right into the eyes of Jesus. And the smell of that charcoal fire is in the air, just like the day Peter had denied him in the greatest failure of his life. Verse 15. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Perhaps his hand was sweeping toward the other disciples and the boats and the fishing nets. Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said. You know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked a question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you, Jesus said. Then feed my sheep. I'm sure it occurred later on to Peter that Jesus had given him the opportunity to affirm his love to him the same number of times that he had denied him. And then Jesus says something to Peter that is puzzling, but prophetic and powerful. Verse 18. I tell you the truth. When you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. Then Jesus told him, follow me. The scripture doesn't give us a record of Peter's death, which was the fulfillment of Jesus' words there, but church tradition says that he was executed after the maniacal Roman Emperor Nero came into power and he began a great persecution of Christians. He had some burned at the stake. He had others thrown to the lions. He had others crucified. And tradition says that Peter died somewhere around A.D. 66 or 67 and that he was crucified, but on an inverted cross at his own request because he said, I am not worthy to die in the same manner as my Lord. And he was crucified upside down. What a man. What a story. But what does it mean to us? What, what, what lessons should we take away? So I want to try to close out the message with three life lessons from Peter's life and journey of faith quickly. Here's one. No Christ follower is immune to failure. No Christ follower is immune to failure. Not Peter, not this pastor, and not you. And if we ever get into the areas of overconfidence or apathy in our spiritual life, it's like putting grease, grease on the slippery slope down to failure. 
Instead, we've got to be strong and vigilant and constantly in the Word of God in prayer because no Christ follower is immune to failure. But this second one is good news. God's forgiveness is complete. That's good news. But here's a warning. Sin's consequences linger. Every decision we make in life has consequences. And when we make wrong decisions, when we commit sins, when we have failures, then we can be forgiven, and God does forgive us. And that removes the guilt, but sometimes the consequences outlive the guilt. And so how much wiser of us not to fail to begin with, right? How much wiser of us to walk more closely with the Lord so that those failures don't happen to begin with. Because God's forgiveness is complete, but sin's consequences linger. Well, one more. The father will not force the prodigal to return, but he waits for him or her to come home with open arms. You know the good thing about God's forgiveness? It's not probation. When you come home repentant after having failed, God restores completely. Peter went from the greatest failure of his life to preaching the greatest sermon that has ever been preached where thousands came to faith on the day of Pentecost. He went on to be one of the key leaders to the early church. Peter went on to die for Jesus. God's forgiveness is not probation. It's full restoration. And the Father celebrates when we come home, and he restores us fully. So what next step should you take and I take from this story of the Apostle Peter? Look back on your past and all of its failures, even your greatest one, and let Peter's story remind you your failures don't have to define you. Let's pray. Father, all of us have failed. We have all committed sins in the past. We've all done things we regret. And yet, Lord, you are a forgiving God, a God of mercy, a God of restoration, a God who loves us unconditionally no matter how we might have failed. Thank you for the mercy and grace of Jesus extended to those who know him by faith. And Lord, I pray for anyone that might have heard this message who has never come to faith in Jesus. May this be the day they become a follower of Jesus Christ and put their faith and trust in him. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Have a blessed week.